And Feliz Año Nuevo. All right, can we, let's all try it. Feliz Año Nuevo. And Happy New Year to you too. Um, we're starting this year uh, by looking at the story of Joseph. It's in Genesis. It, it takes uh, almost a dozen chapters towards the end of the book of Genesis. And it's one of the most incredible stories for me. I, I love the story of Joseph. One of the reasons I love the story of Joseph is when we think about stories of suffering and perseverance in Scripture, we, our minds just go straight to Job. Um, but the story of Job has a story arc where it goes from lots of blessing to total catastrophe to staying in the pit and trying to figure it out for like 48 chapters, and then it all gets better and blessed again at the end. Uh, and life rarely follows that just big, uh, life's great, life's awful, life's great again arc. And now the arguing in the middle of Job is what that book is really about. How do we understand God and faith in the midst of going through trials? Um, and Job's working on all that. But the story of Joseph feels more like the kind of suffering that we go through in real life. Um, it is a story of, uh, of things getting better and then all of a sudden falling apart. Uh, of all of a sudden Joseph being in a place of, of blessing and then having the rug ripped out from under him again. Uh, of Joseph going through one thing after another and it being good and then bad. And, and that feels a lot more like, like life to me. And, and you get the feel from the story that there are years of blessing and years of loss. And it all just kind of goes through there. And Joseph is trying to be uh, God's person through all of that. And we know the main plot points of the story, or you may not, uh, but Joseph is his father's favorite son out of 12 sons. He gives him a beautiful coat. His other brothers get jealous and, and at one point sell him into slavery in Egypt. Uh, while he's in Egypt, he's working for a man uh, who begins to trust him, uh, but he gets framed for trying to rape his wife, uh, and he goes to jail. And while he's in jail, he, he becomes in charge of the jail because he proves to be trustworthy there. Uh, while in jail, God gives him the ability to interpret people's dreams. He interprets two people's dreams. To one of them, he says, you're going to be dead in three days. And the other, he said, you're going to be back at Pharaoh's table in three days. That happens. And he says, listen, just remember me when you go talk to Pharaoh. And he forgets him. And so Joseph is still languishing in prison, forgotten and alone until one day Pharaoh has a dream. And he says, who can interpret this dream? And the cupbearer who had his dream interpreted by Joseph says, I know a guy, he's in jail. He's a good guy, but he's in jail. And he comes up and Joseph interprets the dreams. And when he interprets the dream, he explains to Pharaoh what's coming. And when a famine hits, Pharaoh has put Joseph in charge of all of the affairs of Egypt and is second only in power and authority to Pharaoh himself. And when the famine hits, Joseph is overseeing the famine relief fund and Joseph's brothers have to travel from where they are, where the famine is, to Pharaoh's palace. And they show up and they are sitting at none other than their brother's feet, asking for food when they realize that this is a familiar face. That this isn't an Egyptian ruling over them who has access to the food that can save them from dying from the famine. That they are looking at the face of a brother who they sold into slavery. And they're terrified. Because at this moment, Joseph has to choose whether to refuse their request for help, 
whether to get revenge on them after all that they did to him. And it's in that moment that he says this. This is in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Uh, This is the text you heard read earlier. He says, you intended to harm me. You intended to harm me, he says to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That word intended there is, is, is more vivid than what we get in English. The word there is from the Hebrew word uh, chashab, chashab, and it's a Hebrew word uh, that translated well means intended or plotted or schemed. Uh, it has that idea of, of you got together a plan and you put it together. But it is one of those words that even though it's translated that way, it has a more uh, vivid origin. Uh, The word that it really comes from is the word weaving. You wove together for me a tapestry of harm. You wove together for me ill will. You wanted to hurt me and you tried to weave that pattern of hurting me into my life. But God was weaving a different pattern. God all along was reweaving your intent to hurt me into this weaving of not only trying to bless me, but of trying to do his purposes of saving lives all over this part of the world. And and it's like, how can weaving and plotting be the same thing? In English, we have words that are like this as well. Um, If I said someone tried to undermine me, um, you would say, well, what does that mean? Well, undermine means to go and manipulate someone and their plans and try and keep them from being successful and remove their authority and their influence. But if you look at the literal meaning of the word, it means to dig under someone to mine under them so that the, the, the floor literally drops out from underneath them and they don't have ground to stand on. So undermining comes from a vivid image that we come to understand to mean something else. And, and that chashab is like that too. That it comes from the understanding of, of weaving together things with a design, but they come to use it to very accurately mean your intent, your plotting, your desire uh, to work out a plan in your life or someone else's. And so it has this this imagery to it that's there for the Hebrews who are reading it and who are writing it, that they understand that Joseph's brothers try to weave a certain pattern and plan for Joseph and God's reweaving something else far more beautiful that's going to bring salvation to many people's lives. And I love this image of God taking the broken weavings of our lives and and pulling those threads out, the threads that Satan so often weaves into a a pattern of harm, or that others in our lives who are are people who are trying to hurt us or people who are trying to put us down. We, We have people in our lives who try and lift themselves up by stepping on us to get there. We've got people in our lives who are, are doing all kinds of things. And then we also just live in a fallen world full of brokenness and suffering. And it would be easy in those moments to say, God, what is this, this pattern? What is this weaving that is happening in my life? And we need this story of Joseph to remind us that when others weave harm for us, God is still reweaving goodness into the, the pattern of our lives. And that God can pull those threads that Satan weaves into our lives apart and say, yeah, that may be what you had in mind, Satan, but I'm in charge here, and this is my masterpiece, and I'm doing something else. 
something better. And what God demonstrates in Joseph's life is when Joseph or we are willing to let God do that, that God uses it for his purposes and his glory, not just in our lives, but in benefiting and blessing all of those who are around us. And so today I want to get into a little bit of the story of Joseph and the weavings that are going on in his life and the things that are happening and the things that look like they are bringing him harm and difficulty and struggle. And I want to see how God in those moments is doing something else in the reweaving of those moments. As we think about how God can do that in our lives as well. And the story of the the weaving really begins not in Joseph's life, but a generation or two before. You can trace back family dysfunction for generations in the book of Genesis. Um, It's hard in Genesis. It's the story of the patriarchs and the fathers of Israel and, and of Christianity. But it's hard in the stories of the forefathers to find good parents that aren't struggling to raise faithful kids. For me, it's very comforting to know that God has always worked in and through broken families that are struggling to do the best they can with what they've got. Because what that tells me is that when we've got broken families and when we as a church are a broken family, God's still got work to do here. And he can do that work in us and he can do that work through us for, for others. And so God's constantly bringing blessing through brokenness in the book of Genesis. And we're going to start here in Genesis chapter 29 because like I mentioned, the story of Joseph's Uh, struggles goes back generations. Jacob, if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob steals his brother's birthright in a couple different ways, uh, and then Esau is going to kill him because he just took all of his blessing and his inheritance, uh, and and Jacob was a mama's boy, and his mama went to him and said, hey, your brother's going to kill you. You better get out of here, and so he flees, Uh, and so that's what happens, and so Jacob stays um, with some relatives for a whole month, and after he'd stayed there for a whole month, Laban said to him, Uh, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Uh, He was in love with Rachel because he met her at a well. And when a man meets a woman at a well in the Old Testament, they're just going to get married. Um, I've heard the swings at Harding work this way, but I've never been there. I just trust that it works. But that's how it works in the Old Testament. They met at a well. He's in love. uh, And so now they've got to work out the details. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Young love. (laughs) So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. Now, if you got lost in the details here, Leah is not the daughter that Jacob was in love with or had just worked seven years for. Uh, but in the, the darkness of a wedding feast, uh, mistakes were made. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, 
then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. There's a lot of pain in that sentence. There's a lot of hurt. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. And in every one of these namings, you hear the echo of the pain of the deceit and the betrayal and the love and the jealousy and the conflict that's there in this family where Laban and Jacob have arranged the marriage of Leah and Rachel to a man who loves one more than the other. And she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Four sons. What I love about this story is by the fourth son, she realized that it might not be her husband whose love she needs to be chasing. It might be the love of a good God who keeps providing for her that she should be giving glory to. You really see Leah growing in the naming of her sons here. But this story begins with a couple of, of men who are treating women as possessions to be traded and bartered for and used for work, which is deeply troubling. And fortunately, we live in a world that doesn't work that way anymore. But in the midst of that, they also uh, have deceit. And deceit is part of Jacob's past in, in his deceit of others. And so now he's the victim of the crimes he's committed against others before. And, and there's this hurt where he uh, loves Rachel and all of a sudden he's married to Leah. And he goes to, to his father-in-law and he says, why would you do this? And he said, how about seven more years of work? And he takes seven more years of his, his career and his life and his commitment, and he says, why don't you do that, and, and I'll give you the daughter I already agreed to give you before. And, and he's negotiating this. Now, don't feel too sorry for Jacob. Later, he's going to deceive Laban again and leave with his wealth and livestock. So this is a really messed up situation. But, but these two wives, Rachel and Leah, uh, the setting here of jealousy and a desire for their husband's love, uh, it sets off this frenzy of trying to give him the most sons so that he will love them the most. And in the next chapter, what you see is they get their two servants involved and they say, listen, uh, you can also take my servant as a wife and you can love her and she'll give you more children and more sons. And, and by the time this ends up happening, uh, he starts having sons after sons. He ends up having uh, six sons and one daughter with Leah. He has two sons through Rachel's servant Bilhah. He has two sons through Leah's servant Zilpah. And then finally, after having these 11 children, 10 sons and one daughter, he has a child with Rachel, a little boy named Joseph. 
And when we just started the story of Joseph, what the text tells you is that he loves Joseph the most because he had him later in life. But when you read the story of Rachel and Leah, it has nothing to do with birth order. He's the son, the first son of the wife that Jacob loved the most. And he loves Joseph. And eventually, uh, Rachel will conceive a second son named Benjamin, uh, the 12th son of Jacob, who came to be known uh, as Israel. And that 12th son is Benjamin. And if these names sound familiar, it's because they're going to become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. God is working through all of this jealousy, all of this competition, all of this uh, use of, uh, of ch children to try and earn love and say, you know what, this, the weaving of this world is very broken, but what God is weaving is, is the birth of a nation that's going to become his people. This is a lot of brokenness, but what God is doing is a lot of beauty in the midst of the brokenness. And he's reweaving all of this. Joseph then was the 11th of the 12 brothers. He becomes the favorite son because he is the first son of the most loved wife. And God just keeps working in the background of all of this mess. Does it mean that God loves the mess? No, God wants all of this to be different. God wants uh, better things from families. God wants better things from husbands and wives. God doesn't want people to be struggling with, with barrenness and a desire for children and an inability to do that. But in the midst of that brokenness that exists in a world that has all of this deceit and fallenness and jealousy, things that we create, God says, you know what? In the midst of that mess, I can still make a masterpiece. Yeah. And he keeps working in this family. And God takes the broken weaves of this family and reweaves them into something incredible. And as the story continues, Joseph gets older. Uh, Rachel actually dies during childbirth for Benjamin. Uh, and, and Jacob goes into a season of grief for losing the wife that he loved the most. And now Joseph is, gets all of the love that comes from that kind of loss, being the child of the one who passed away. And, and in Genesis 37, it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of his family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. So he's with the brothers of the servants, who, if you have tracked the story, are the least favorite among the brothers. And he brought their father a bad report about them. That's Old Testament speak for he tattletailed, okay? That's what happened. Um, and if you know anything, this is not so much Old Testament, but more a contemporary reading of it. Uh, snitches get stitches, okay? That happens all through history. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, which is really bad when God loves the snitch more than the others, but here we go. Uh, and when he told it to Joseph, let's see. Now, God loved Israel more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. Listen to this dream I had. Funny dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. 
And his brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. You've got to understand that in the ancient world, the younger brother has to know his place. Little brother is not going to get the lion's share of the inheritance. Little brother doesn't get the blessing. Jacob had to swindle his brother to get his. And now another little brother in this family says, Hey guys, I keep having this dream that you're all going to bow down to me. And they already have suspicions that dad might love him the most because dad knows that he's the firstborn of the favorite wife. The 11th born of them all, but the firstborn of the favorite. And you got to know that they might be wondering, what if dad decides to skip us and give the blessing to him and not to us? And then Joseph says, hey, that's funny that you guys might be thinking that. I keep having dreams where that's exactly what happens. In fact, I had one the other day where the, the, the uh, sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down. What do you think that meant? Hey, there's 11 of you. Isn't that funny? I wonder if it means that you'll bow down to me someday. And they're super jealous. And as this story goes on, what we see is that, uh, that they have an opportunity out in the fields while tending sheep to kill Joseph. Reuben, one of the older brothers, doesn't want him to be killed because he doesn't want to break his dad's heart. And he says, listen, let's just throw him in this well and leave him here till later. And then Reuben leaves. He's going to come back. But while he's gone, they say, hey, uh, there's some slave traders going to Egypt. Let's just sell him. If we kill him, we get nothing. If we sell him, we get to make a little bit of extra money on the way. So they sell him for 20 shekels and send him off down to Egypt. And suddenly Joseph goes from the favorite brother in the ornate coat to traveling as a slave that's for sale in Egypt. And he gets there and he gets sold to the house of a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar, after a little while, sees that he's a good man. He's just a, an older teenager at this point, but quickly he rises to be uh, second in command to Potiphar, running his household for him. And he says, I can trust this guy with anything. And God's blessing Joseph and weaving blessing into the story, even though so many things have happened that would seem to be for his harm and his injury. God's doing something else. And he's at Potiphar's house, and Pot not only does he find favor with Potiphar, but he starts to find favor with Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife comes to him one day and says, I, I want you to sleep with me. And she tries to seduce him, and she tries to use her power to say, listen, you've got to do this. You don't have a choice. Uh, and Joseph says, I do have a choice, and runs away. But while he's running, his garment gets left behind, and she takes it to her husband and says, can you believe that your servant tried to seduce me and have his way with me? And Potiphar goes to Joseph and says, I can't believe I trusted you. can't believe I trusted you with my household, and you tried to take advantage of my wife. And she frames him. And the foreigner who's living in the household of a wealthy man cannot in court have his testimony hold up against her. And so he's in jail. 
He's in jail when he didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he's in jail specifically for doing the right thing. And it would be so easy to say, God, how have you allowed this to become my life? What happened to the, the sheaves bowing to me? What happened to the promises you made to me? What, what happened to, to me doing the right thing and being blessed for it? I'm in jail wrongly. I've been framed. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I'm going to grow wherever I'm planted. He's one of those people that just says, wherever I am, I'm going to make it a better place. And Joseph starts blessing people and, and becoming trusted within the prison. And the jailer eventually says, man, you're better at this than I am. I'm going to put you in charge of the jail. You just take care of all the jail stuff, and I'm going to you know, just make the money. Uh, and so Joseph is running the jail where he is a prisoner. Uh, and two uh, of the j- prisoners have dreams. One of them's a baker and one of them's a cupbearer. And they say, what do we make of these dreams? And Joseph says, God's the one who gives the interpretation of dreams. Let me pray and ask him to help me. And he says, God's giving the interpretation to the baker. Uh, in three days, your head's going to get removed and put on a stake. Bad news. To the cupbearer, in three days, you're going to be back at your post at Pharaoh's table, drinking his cup and then handing it to him. All I ask is when you get there, that you tell Pharaoh that I, I bless you that I am a good person, that I'm here wrongly. And the cupbearer says, you got it. Three days later, that happens to both of them, and the cupbearer forgets him. And if you're Joseph, it would be so easy to become resentful, but he doesn't. It would be so easy to say, God, this isn't the plan that I had for me. This isn't the plan you had for me. Why is this happening to me? But Joseph just keeps doing what he should be doing. Sometime later, Pharaoh has a dream, and he says, I'll give anything to someone who can interpret this dream and tell me what it means. He keeps having it, Uh, and the cupbearer goes, man, if only I knew someone who can interpret dreams. Wait, I remembered there was this guy in jail. Maybe he's still there. And they go and they get him, and they bring him before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, here's my dream. And, and, And Joseph says, well, God helps me to tell people what their dreams mean, and I'll tell you what yours means. And Pharaoh tells him the dream, and he says, here's what it means. There's about to be seven years of incredible abundance in Egypt, wealth beyond anything this empire has ever experienced before. But after that is going to be seven years of famine. And if you don't use the next seven years to prepare, no one will survive the next seven. And Pharaoh is blown away by this explanation. And he says, with this kind of wisdom, you're the kind of guy that I need running the program that's going to help this work. And so what he says is, you're going to be second in command in Egypt. I'm first, you're second, I want you in charge of the famine relief program. So Joseph is now running Egypt under Pharaoh's supervision. And Joseph sets about this program of aggressive taxation for seven years, and he puts it all away in storehouses of Pharaoh's. And then for the seven years after that, the people would come to him and he would sell them grain so that they could survive this famine. In the midst of that, Joseph's family up in Canaan is hungry. And they say, we've got no choice. We've heard the only place to get food is Egypt. They've got this young ruler who set up a plan. So they travel to get there. Joseph sets up this elaborate scheme that basically tests whether or not they're willing to betray Rachel's other son or not. And when they show that they've learned their lesson and that they care about their dad and that if they were given the choice to do to Joseph again what they did to him in the past, that they wouldn't because of how they treat Benjamin, 
Uh, it's an amazing story. Go read the story. Joseph is brilliant in setting up this trap. They pass his test, and then they come back, and they're begging for it, and they realize who he is, and they're begging for his lives, and then he says it. They know that their lives hang in the balance. The brother that they threw in the well, the brother that they sold into slavery, all of the hardships of Joseph's life came from their greed, their jealousy. And it goes back to their mother's feuding in the past, but it's been passed down to them. And now these brothers have this feud, and they realize that if the feud still exists, that Joseph's going to deny them food, and that they're going to have to go home and die with their father. Will he refuse them? Will he seek revenge? Will he just kill them? And he says, here's what you need to know. You tried to weave a pattern of harm for me, but you're not the master weaver. God is. And while you tried to weave that pattern for me, God was weaving something else entirely. And he wove a different pattern. And, and, and look at my life. But he doesn't say, look at all the good God gave me. Look at all my wealth. Look at all my power. Look at what God did. Hey, I told you all those years ago you would bow down to me. Look at where we are. Ha <laughs> ha! Which, by the way, would have been pretty fun to do. But he says, no, you tried to weave a plan that would kill me. That would end my life. But you know what God was doing? He was weaving a plan that would save other people's lives. He was putting me through the pit, through slavery, through jail, through abandonment, all of that so that I could save lives. I'm saving lives. And he says, by the way, your plan was to end my life and God's plan was to use that harm that you wove for me and reweave it into me saving your lives. And that's what's going to happen today. So we read this story and we think, what is God doing in my life? And we may have, you may come from a family that's as broken, as messed up as they come. You may come from a family that, that just exudes conflict. And that you may have parents that said that you weren't worth anything or that treated you like trash. Whatever it is that the family you come from passed down to you, whatever story they tried to weave for you, they're not the master weaver. God can take those threads, pull them apart, and weave something else in your life. If you look at the world that you live in and you think, I, I like the way things used to be, not the way that they are now. I don't understand the world that I live in today. How could this be the way that it is? Who's in charge here? Here's the good news. The master weaver is. And he's weaving something in you. And you might just say, this world is just, it's just hard. And I'm beat up. And I'm worn down. And I don't know why. And the story of Joseph echoes down for the centuries and the millennia. And it gives us this promise that even when it feels like the, that Satan and the world and the suffering of everything is weaving a pattern of destruction in our lives, that God is weaving something greater for the benefit of his kingdom and his glory and other people if you'll just open yourself to letting him take control of the threads. God wants to bless you so that you can become a blessing to others. 
This year we're going to be talking a lot about what God's doing in the weaving of our lives as a church and as individuals, weaving us into Him, weaving us into the world, weaving us into uh, people that are no longer disconnected threads but part of a, a beautiful tapestry. A master priest at God's hand, the one who is really in control even when it feels like everything is out of control or that evil reigns. God is good and God's in charge and God has blessing in store for you if you're just ready to receive receive it, and to pass it on. He's ready to, to work in you. This morning, if you need to uh, respond to the message of Jesus Christ, that if you just believe in Him, you can be saved, that He'll give you His Spirit, and His Spirit will work in you and through you to do incredible things, gifting you and blessing you and weaving you into the fabric of God and the church and, and, and just giving you so many blessings. If you need to do that this first day of this new year, Come forward this morning as we stand and sing. Turn my heart, O Lord, like rivers of water. Turn my heart, O Lord, by your hand till my 